This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone because individually we're great, but together we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 16 years from today, Greg Gerstner will finally land the perfect cannonball. Epic Splash. Unsuspecting friends. A work of art only possible because Greg is already meeting all these same people at AARP volunteer and community events that keep him active and involved and help make sure his happiness lives as long as he does. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org local. Welcome to the BBC Music Magazine podcast. You can subscribe to the magazine by visiting classical-music.com or to our interactive iPad edition by visiting iTunes.com. BBC Music Magazine is now an official Apple Music curator and you can listen to our exclusive playlists by visiting applemusic.com slash bbcmm. So hello, I'm Oliver Condy, editor of BBC Music Magazine, and here we are all once again, this time with a slightly revamped version of our First Listen podcast. In previous months, all four of us have discussed just one intriguing new disc between us. But from this month, we'll each be choosing a recording that has caught our ears with the aim of trying to pique the interest of our colleagues. With me in the studio this week to share their discoveries are Deputy Editor Jeremy Pound, Reviews Editor Rebecca Franks and Editorial Assistant Eleanor Cooper. Hello. So let's get on with the show. Rebecca, which recording have you chosen to bring today? I have chosen a disc called Monteverdi's The Other Vespers, and that's with Ifagellini and um, Robert Hollingworth. And as we probably know, it's Monteverdi's 450th anniversary year this year. Um, I, for one, have been slightly addicted to his music and having a bit of a Monteverdi obsession. And there's been a lot in the concert hall. There's John Elliott Gardner doing his fantastic opera series. And there haven't actually been so many recordings yet, um, but there have been a handful that have come through. But this one really captured my imagination. So let's have a listen to one of the tracks from the disc, which is Monteverdi's Beata's Veer. 
So that was uh, Monteverdi's Beata's Beer from this disc of Monteverdi's The Other Vespers. Uh, just had a little amusing exchange. I've written down that I liked the kind of level of bounce on that. I thought it was quite uplifting. And I thought it didn't have enough bounce. <laughs> I think usually recordings of that do tend to be a bit kind of lively and maybe even a bit faster. But it's lovely. I think it's really elegant and, um, yeah, really nice singing. I wonder if there are some decisions, actually, performance sort of practice decisions that Robert Hollingworth writes about in the booklet notes, which are they're really good booklet notes, actually, as well. I thought they were really nice and kind of straightforward and explained just the right things about what they were doing. But he talks a bit about his tempo decisions in there. So I wonder if it's kind of based on that, perhaps. Can you just give us a further idea of what's in the programme other than Monteverdi? Because there's other composers, aren't there? So he's taken the idea that Monteverdi, the Vespers of 1610, has become this, it's actually a collection, but um, sort of become this big iconic work. It's all performed together. You can probably hear it all over the place this year. Um, and he has actually um, said, right, uh, we don't actually know that that was all performed together. We don't know that Monteverdi would ever have performed it, been sort of involved in performances. There are no records of this. But we do have the documents of Monteverdi directing the music for a Vespers, not at St. Mark's Basilica where in Venice, but um, elsewhere for a different feast in, in 1620. And they've used a later collection of his music published in 1641, the Selva Morale Spirituale, which is the moral and spiritual wood, to put together this kind of alternative Vespers and it has other composers so it has um, some instrumental stuff by Castello and Frescobaldi um, it has a bit of Palestrina in a sort of arrangement and a piece by Donati and some Giovanni Gabrielli so it has other pieces interwoven. I kind of wish that was made more obvious on the cover of the CD actually because you do get the impression that this is perhaps a Vespers a collection of Monteverdi works formed into a Vespers that people don't know mm. rather than yeah. simply being a collection of Monteverdi works and other and others. composers and, and and although I love I love it I think it's a wonderful conceit I, I love the organ music I mean myself being an organist it's always nice to hear organ music in in a disc that is on a popular label like Decca Classics. Um, and I think the instrument they've chosen is fantastic. It's a very beautiful, lovely, sort of woody chamber organ. And I think I think it is delightful, but I would have liked there to have been a little bit more explicit description of what we're getting. There's a nice resonant acoustic to the recording as well, actually, I have to say. I'm a bit fed up with some of these dry, acoustically recorded period instrument recordings we get these days to actually let it breathe a little bit is rather nice and the ensemble size is, is, is nice. It's nice I like it, it. It's, it's nice and intimate actually and there's um, a nice sense of improvisation as well I think that they do really well um, with, with the instrumentalists that kind of brings it alive mm. I'm going to hear another track yes so in fact this one kind of demonstrates that a bit so this is um, the Ave Verum Corpus it's Palestrina but in this kind of um, embellished version by uh Giovanni Battista Bovicelli and you'll hear kind of male voices and then a cornetto kind of improvised well sort of playing over the top sort of elaborations it's quite haunting I thought Well, we all think that that reminds us of Jan Garbarek with improvising the saxophone over the voices of the Iliad Ensemble, but some of us like that more than others. <laughs> 
Well, I think I think it just goes to show that there's nothing new under the sun, really, doesn't it? Really, I mean, you know, Yang Garbrecht and the Hilliard Ensemble weren't exactly groundbreaking. Although what they did was was sort of reintroduce that in a modern context, but mm. that clearly it, is improvisatory. Yeah. All, all music of this period was improvisatory. You know, all no, instrumental I music was. I think it's rather effective. So that was um, Monteverdi, the other Vespers, uh, performed by E. Fagiolini, conducted by Robert Hollingworth, and that's on Decca Classics, and that's Rebecca's choice this month. Now we're going to move on to Eleanor Cooper's choice, uh, and you've chosen. Brahms sonatas for cello and piano and Schumann uh, five pieces performed by Robin Michael on the cello and Daniel Tong on piano. Tell yeah. us why you've chosen this. Uh, so this was actually, I reviewed this in the um, July issue of BBC Music Magazine uh, for our brief note section and I was just so struck by it that I thought I'd include it here again um, because it's, so it's a unique selling point really is that it's um, a historical performance um, which I don't think we tend to associate with Brahms so much and, and Schumann to an extent. Um, but so there's a really interesting programme note that explains why they've decided to do that. And and Robin Michael, um, who is the cellist on this, he's playing with gut strings and Daniel Tong is actually playing a piano that they think Brahms played. So it's contemporary piano for, for Brahms. And it gives us this really um, intimate kind of chamber feel to Brahms' music, which is often played with very big kind of lush full vibrato sound and it's just really nice and new and I really enjoyed it so I, I would start with by playing a track uh, so this is the track uh, from Brahms's Sonata Number no. 1 for cello and piano in E minor and it's the Allegro non troppo So that was uh, the sonata number one for cello and piano in E minor. And that's one of two sonatas on this disc. It's uh, one and two. And then Schumann's um, five pieces in a folk style. I really love the balance, actually, on this disc. I I, I think when Daniel Tong is, is really going for it, I don't get the impression that he would swamp out the cello. I think the engineers don't necessarily have to do much for the ensemble. I think the two instruments are married well together. Yeah, um, it's really interesting because Michael says that he um, never really got Brahms and then he played it with um, John Elliott Gardner, actually, and and had kind of that influence from um, John Elliott Gardner, who's a historical legend. Because um, he's principal cello of the um, yeah, Orchestra of yeah. Revolutionaries. And he was saying that that approach was the first time that he really understood how Brahms's music could sit in a chamber um, capacity, particularly because it's not really, his vision of it is that it's not really that big, it's very intimate. I think you definitely get the intimacy there, don't you, in that opening with just the focus on the cello line. I found this interesting because for an upcoming issue of the magazine where we're actually looking at the influence of um, period instruments on um, on performers and, and the pieces of music and the kind of match between them, I was talking to a clarinetist actually about Brahms and they were saying the, the instrument completely made them rethink how to approach this music. And as you say, there's kind of been this tradition later of of, of turning it into this big romantic kind of feel. But actually, 
there could be more elements of speech or something about the, the instruments that you use will kind of dictate how you phrase and how you colour the sound. And I get that impression that that's what's happened here as well. I do like the simplicity and the intimacy of it, but do you occasionally feel that they're keeping their emotions a little bit too much in check? I don't know. I think the instrument, that, which is a, it's a Blutner as far as I can mm, tell, yeah. um, is a very intimate piano and it depends what you mean by keeping your emotions in check i mean i think our ears are more attuned to the idea of grand sort of dynamic changes being uh symbolic of sort of great mood changes and i think that can be done as much with the articulation and with the move movement of the music as much as it can be done with the movement of the volume of the instrument i, I suppose there's a danger as well in going oh we know that brahms had this piano and might have played it then that gives it more authenticity than, I mean, perhaps that's just convenience. Perhaps that was the piano that was there. I guess <laughs> and actually you might want some, something else. I guess actually it's one of these occasions where you've actually got to train yourself as a listener a bit because I'm so used to hearing the Brahms sonatas with kind of a Steinway piano, a modern cello or a big cello and both going hell for leather. And that works too. And that works too. And you get so used to that sort of sound world that when you hear it played differently and on different types of instruments... And I think it's, it's, I think, and I think it's really yeah. important to know that, that Brahms... Uh, realise that Brahms looks back as much as he looks forward. I mean, Brahms was really a Bach fan and, and, and also how much of a sort of classical heritage there is in this. And this intimacy, I think, reminds us of the music that comes before Brahms as much as the music that was being written at the same time and maybe stuff a little bit after, like Elgar, for example. Mm. You know. The second track I've chosen, actually, to play you is is a bit bigger and a bit kind of more outward-looking, so maybe we should listen to that now. It's um, uh, from the Schumann uh, Five Pieces in a Folk Style, and it's Nicht zu rasch. <laughs> was a piece from um, Schumann's Five Pieces in a Folk Style, Nicht zu Rask. And we were talking about actually how the, maybe the balance isn't quite as good here, but maybe that's because Schumann isn't as great at writing for cello and piano as Brahms. I don't know. Did mm. Brahms have a much better understanding of the kind of uh, relationship those two instruments have? I, I, I don't know. I mean, they um, are folk songs, so there is that kind of simpler, the cello is supposed to be leading more and being the yeah, singer. That's true. Um, whereas the piano is maybe a company, whereas in the Brahms it really feels like they're partners and they kind mm. of have this relationship that changes throughout it. Mm. Mm. So Eleanor was talking about recording on the Resonus label, which is Brahms' Sonatas for Cello and Piano, Opuses 38 and 39, and Schumann's Five Pieces in a Folk Style, Opus 102, with Robin Michael on cello and Daniel Tong on piano. So now it's my turn, and I'm going for the new Aura Disc. It's a brand new choir, what was founded in February 2016. Brand new choir, uh, founded by uh, the vocal 
uh, conductor, the choral conductor Susie Digby, made up of singers from choirs all across London, I suppose. Um, sort of choral spotters will no doubt see singers that have come from the 16 or the Gabrielli consort or other choirs. But this is this is uh, sort of the best of the best. This is how she describes the little creme de la creme of the choral talent today. And, well... Her projects are very, very original. She, uh, This is volume two we're discussing today of um, Renaissance gems and their reflections. And the idea is uh, that the discs are collections of Renaissance music and composers are invited to compose reactions to these pieces. The best thing to do, I think, is to play some of the talis that is featured on this disc, just to give you an idea of, of the singing quality. So the first uh, track is uh, Thomas Talis's Videte Miraculum, Behold the Miracle. So that was an extract from Thomas Tallis's Videti Miraculum, Behold the Miracle, sung by Aura, a new choir conducted by Susie Digby. Um, I think the singing is is sublime. I think the balance of voices are lovely. And I, I, what I like about it is the fact that there's a, there seems to be a nice sort of modern take on it without it being too kind of stuffy, but also without it going the other way, without it being too kind of, you know, over the top. I think there's a sense of sensible dynamic levels, but an emotional intelligence to it. I think what's really nice is you can hear the characters of the individual voices, even though it's within that kind of framework of the choir. And there are some fantastic singers, as you said, on that disc. And uh, it's really lovely to hear that kind of individual sound, which you don't hear in other choirs always. How many voices are there in the choir? Um, I think it varies from recording to recording, but I think on this this one there, there, there are exactly 20. And are they evenly spread? or? Uh, I think there are eight sopranos and then four altos, four tenors and four basses. I think the balance is actually um, really rather lovely. I think having eight sopranos means you get a very clean upper line and you get this beautiful texture underlying it. I think it works very well. Mm-hmm. Of course, the main meat, I think, of this recording and their previous recordings has been their commissions. And they've got a very, very ambitious goal in 10 years to have 100 commissions by 100 contemporary composers. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Susie and her board have been busy scrabbling around trying to find some private sponsorship to actually fund this, but it's a very impressive aim. All of those composers, um, female, male, young and old, are to be given a piece of Renaissance music and a length of time in which they're to write that piece within, um, but on the whole they're free in, in what they can do with that piece of music, and what we've come up with is, is, is a set of very valuable um, pieces that can be part of this sort of rich choral heritage that we have in this country and of course in other countries around the world and I think Susie is again you know trying to create a sort of a new golden age which is what she says of of choral singing it's a very laudable project I think we should hear certainly one of my favorites which is Richard Allain's um 
reaction to the Talis piece we heard earlier. So it's his version of Videte Miraculum. So we'll hear a short extract of that just to give you a flavour of the sort of thing these composers are doing. So that was Richard Alain's uh, Videti Miraculum, a uh, very sort of multi-layered sound, um, sort of with a sort of cantus firmus sort of underlying, um, I think, foundation to it. I, I, I do get the impression sometimes that a lot of the commission pieces are of that sort of ilk. Mm. I, I don't, really I don't know. I quite, I quite, what I quite like about this disc is there is at least enough variety within the, the various commissions. And, and let's be honest, they are actually all going from the same kind of same base. So there's only so far you can escape that original brief. I suppose, but I, I kind of, I suppose I felt that sometimes I would like a bit more polyphony rather than that sort of sense of clustery nebulousness that yeah. you get yeah. in modern choral music, which is, we all know is sort of born out of that sort of Lauridsen, uh, uh, curb style that's very been invoked, around yes. for 10, 20 years. Yeah. I had a mini gripe, which was not to do with the actual musical content, but just that they've got six commissions here and there's only one by a female composer. So I just, it'd be really nice if... They have a, more of a balance in their upcoming ones, which they may well do. I don't know what they've got coming up in the projects. But that seems quite strange when there are so many contemporary female composers. And it's just something I notice on quite a few choral discs coming through. That mm. I kind of I always wonder why that is the case. I understand historically it might be more dif- difficult, but with contemporary stuff where you're choosing your composers... I, also I have, have a question an, about that, really. I don't have a quote so much with that. I'm sure that balance will be kind of balanced out as we as we go through the series. At least I hope it will. My ba- my gripe is actually is with one tiny moment of performance in what is such a beautifully sung disc overall. In Ken Burton's piece, the tenor soloist seems very out of sorts. I'm slightly surprised that they let that let that one go. I think it's a stylistic thing. I can see, I can hear what they may have been trying to do with that, and but I'm not. I'm, I agree with you. I'm not sure it was successful, but I think that it's in the style. Yes, but there's, they're singing in a certain style and they're, singing, they're sounding downright uncomfortable, which frankly he does. Maybe they should have chosen a gospel singer or someone more yeah. attuned to that kind of style of singing. But, I, you know, I, I think a lot of these singers aren't necessarily soloists. I think mm. they are very much, you know, ensemble members. I think they go to create a blend and a, and a, and a type of sound that obviously Susie Digby is after, mm. whether they are sort of full-blown soloists. I, I and I know. should add that that's just a tiny little moment in what is it's altogether beautiful. beautifully it's sung. It's very yes. beautifully sung. It is, and yeah. it was very moving, actually, to see the Stephen Stuckey, although Stephen Stuckey um, wasn't commissioned to write a piece for this disc. Um, he died once while they were recording the, um, uh, the the disc in the same month. So um, as a sort of tribute to him, uh, they included his O Sacrum Convivium. And it's a very sort of... And they put this right at the front as the first new contemporary piece within the collection. It, it works very, very well. Mm, absolutely. It's really a beautiful piece. Mm. Another one which I wanted to pick out was um, actually the female composer on the disc is Kerry Andrew, um, who's written this uh, piece which is not... The, not in the, her style that I've heard otherwise. And she's kind of very well known for doing body percussion and and um, kind of very modern looped um, 
vocal works. And actually, she's written something like that for the BBC Ten Pieces project, um, which is coming up this summer. Um, and so it's really nice to hear her kind of exploring a different um, different sound. Yeah, absolutely. So that was Aura's new disc, Many Are the Wonders, it's called. And it's volume two in their collection of Renaissance gems and their reflections. And it's conducted by Susan Digby and it's on the Harmonia Mundi label. So now we move on to Depsy editor Jeremy's Choice. What have you brought in for us to enjoy today? Right, you're not going to hear that many discs over the course of the year, which have been recorded by a recorder quartet. But this one came to my attention fairly recently, and I absolutely adore it. Um, the name of the quartet in question is called Palisander, and the disc is called Beware the Spider. And what it is, basically, it is a disc of works which are related to spiders and, more importantly, to spider bites. Um, and part of the historical thing of this is that um, in the distant past, when you were bitten by a spider, it was believed that one of the best ways to get rid of the poison was to dance vigorously. And so a number of these words, and this is actually where we get, we, well, we sort of, I'll explain this after we've heard our first track, but we sort of get Tarantella from this. But first of all, I actually want to play one of the tracks, and that track is um, it's by Vivaldi, and it's called the Nightmare Concerto. Now, this was originally a flute concerto, which has actually been arranged by one of the group's members, Miriam Nerville, for recorder, recorder Quartet. Um, and we're going to hear the final movement, which is the Allegro. And the idea behind the Nightmare Concerto is that when you are bitten by a spider, it gives you all sorts of hallucinogenic, horrible dreams. And this is what Vivaldi is portraying here. actually go on to all matters arachnophobic, I just want to briefly describe what a tarantella is and its sort of etymology. So it's all quite complex because there's these, um, it is actually the word tarantella is derived not from tarantula, but actually from the town Taranto in southern Italy. And also the word tarantula actually probably we think is also derived from Taranto. So that's where this sort of, these three words all come together. And it was in Taranto that people kind of dance these dances to actually try and sweat sort of spider poison out of their out of their blood. And hence you get these sort of slightly manic dances, which have been beautifully arranged here, I have to say. Maybe I should try that when I got stung by a jellyfish last week. <laughs> should have done a crazy dance to jellyfish get rid of this. Well, jellyfish maybe you could dance. persuade Palisander to do a, another disc called Beware of the Jellyfish, yeah. just for people like yourself. <laughs> so they, but they've actually arranged a lot of this music, haven't they, for a quarter quartet? I mean, they've been very, very sort of resourceful, I think. They've, they've dug up all sorts of wonderful bits and pieces, and they've they put together a programme that is very coherent and, 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 and is and is very, uh, very you know, it's a very arresting... It's very interesting as well when you read about it. I mean, to listen to, but also just to read about it as well. And absolutely, just to give you that. a range of the composers here, as well as that Vivaldi. And we've also got, and we've got sort of some bird in there, some... I've never heard of this chap before, but... 
Anthanasius Kircher, from, mm-hmm. dates from 1641. Um, and then there's a couple of just traditional Neapolitan tarant- tellers in there as well. And so it's a sort of, it shows that sort of this kind of whole fear of spiders and this belief that somehow you can use non-medical ways of actually getting rid of sp- spider poison. It spread right across Europe. It wasn't just an Italian thing. But it was to do with the humours, wasn't it? So if you, it was kind of the tarantula bite affected your humour that you were in. And so music has always had a really close relationship with with humours and, and making you feel a certain way. And I like on this disc that they've included some of the karma um, things as well because there were different kinds of tarantula bite that you had. And so some of them would make you melancholy and some of them would make you um, have fits. And, and then there, so there's this calming music as well, which is used for potentially for the people who are having fits. And anyone who's arachnophobic is not actually a tarantula. And there's a spider on the front, so you'd want to know about that on the cover. But actually the, the, the spider isn't a tarantula that we think of. It's probably a black widow spider. Exactly, exactly. But the playing is very crisp, and I, I think it's very, you know, the ensemble's fantastic. And so the, clean, the really immaculate. And, you know, I think, you know, I mean, dare I say it, recorder ensemble is not something I would necessarily go out in here, let's all be honest. But I think this is, this ensemble clearly showing what a, what a multicoloured, diverse sound you can get from these instruments. I mean, that wonderful sort of pan-pipey effect that the, I, 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 is it a bass recorder, tenor recorder? I, I don't know. I think it must be a bass recorder. Yeah, they, I think they've got a, They've got a contrabass, I think, because mm. I was reading in the back. They did this twenty-four-hour recordathon to raise money so that they could have these recorders, wow. which is a, a mm. like a console, and then they've got a contrabass in F. And they, all do, they do all sorts of kind of clever tricks with them as well. They show you how much you can do with a recorder rather than just blow through it. It's, it's brilliant. So for my next tracks now, we're going to go for one of the traditional Neapolitan tarantellas. Um, it's just just a traditional song, and it was arranged by Miriam Nerville again. I just love the folkiness of that. That was a traditional Neapolitan tarantella arranged by Miriam Nerville. And it was on this disc, which is Beware the Spider by Palisander, which is a record quartet. And it's on their own label. It's the Palisander label. Marvellous. So we've come to the end of uh, each other's recordings. So we come to the bit now where we vote on the one recording we've most enjoyed out of the selection. You're not allowed to vote for your own. So, Rebecca, let's return to you. Uh, Which recording most sort of caught your ear? I'm actually going to vote for that, Palisander, because it opened my ears. Yeah, a lot of fun. I've, I've really enjoyed all the all the four recordings we've heard. Um, I think Monteverdi is going to have quite enough um, promotion this year, as it is anyway. So I I was particularly taken with the Brahms and the Schumann. Um, I oh, it's such a hard choice, but um, of all the discs, I think the one I would return to listen to again would be the Beware the Spider, just because again, it's just such an interesting sound that I'm not used to hearing, and uh, I, they, I love what they've done with it. 
I'm actually going to go for the uh, Monteverdi. Um, I thought it was a, a, just a beautifully imaginative um, collection of works that I would return to again and again. And I think the ensemble is is fine. I think the acoustic is fine. And I think all the musicianship is clearly shining through. Um, what a brave recording to put on Decca, um, a label that sort of, I think, you know, has a, has, a, has a duty as part of a multinational company to produce slightly more popular discs. So I think it's a brave choice for them. Um, so I, I enjoyed that very much. So I think that actually gives us, by one vote, uh, a winner in Palisander. So congratulations, yeah, Palisander. You are the first winner of our new First Listen podcast. So that brings us to the end of this month's podcast. I do hope we've given you some new ideas for listening. In the meantime, it's goodbye from all of us. Goodbye. And we'll see you next month. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this BBC Music Magazine podcast, which was produced in our Bristol studio by Jack Fletcher. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at classical-music.com or simply head to iTunes.